Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Steps just outside of BP Hall at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Los Angeles twilight hour is exceptionally beautiful. Lights of the cars heading home from work, the buildings of Bunker Hill standing against the evening, and of course, the reflection of the silver exterior of the Walt Disney Concert Hall, which now towers above me. Its playful yet sophisticated design reflects the range of the music heard inside, from the L.A. Philharmonic to Duran Duran and all shades in between. Tonight, Socalo Radio contributes its civic voice to the mix. An evening with Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, recorded at BP Hall in Walt Disney Concert Hall as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series. Villaraigosa entered office two years ago with great fanfare, landing the cover of Newsweek and receiving recognition as the city's first Latino mayor in over a century. In this exclusive interview with Jim Newton, editor of the Los Angeles Times editorial pages, the mayor answers questions on the state of the city's schools, public safety, the housing crisis, traffic congestion, immigration policy, and whether the character of elected officials matters. Here is Jim Newton. You have had what might charitably be described as a pretty tough summer. You deflected rumors uh, about troubles in your marriage, then you acknowledged some difficulties, then announced your divorce, and then were in a position of having to admit a long affair with a local television reporter. Today, your approval ratings have dropped, and supporters who once touted you for governor now worry about your future. I guess my question to you is not to probe in your personal life, but to ask whether this has hurt your ability to govern uh, and lead this city effectively. Jim. I've said from the beginning, I'll say it again, you have to accept responsibility for your mistakes, for your actions. More than anything, I owe an apology to my family, my children. We're in the process of trying to heal from this summer, as you said, and I'm focused on my job. And that's all I've got to say about this summer. I'm going to ask you one more and then sure. we'll move on. Is it fair to judge an elected official's character, uh, at least in part, by their fidelity to their spouse? And if so, should we judge you harshly on that basis? You know, some people are going to make those judgments. And I don't think it's appropriate for me to say it's fair or not fair. I never took umbrage with many in the media with the, the, the personal nature of their questions. You were doing your job. People are going to make assessments about you based on a number of things, including how you interact uh, with your family. And all I can do is live my life in a way that recognizes that when I make a mistake, I've got to accept the responsibility for it. I've got to reach out to my loved ones and try to learn from the experience and, and do my job. And that's what I'm trying to do. And in your view, and then I will end this, you say you made a mistake. What's the mistake that you made? You know, the hurt, the hurt you caused, you know, your family, your kids, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, something like this is very painful for the people that you love. And 
that's my first and last preoccupation with respect to all of that. And I think not only that, I think there's, there's a disillusionment that, that people overall probably have as well, and, and you, have to, you have to deal with that too. Moving on to schools, the other happy subject. <laughs> um, schools actually, weren't, a, weren't a big part of your actually, agenda. Actually, my family's in a good place. Good. So it is a happy subject. I'm glad to hear. And schools are in a better place today, so that's a happy subject as well. Well, let me ask you that. Uh, they weren't, uh, schools were not a big part of your agenda when you ran in 2005, but they really have become a central part of your mission as mayor. <laughs> You've fought to take them over, one in the legislature. Obviously, the courts uh, had a different view of it. You've elected a board majority that's still in its early stages. You inherited a superintendent who seems widely liked, but really has yet to put up any measurable successes. Why should people in the city feel optimistic about the future of the schools at this point, or should they? Well, first of all, in my first campaign in 2001, I actually made building and siting of schools uh, a part of the campaign expanding after-school programs a part of the campaign. In the second campaign, it was an even bigger part of the campaign. What, what I didn't say during the campaign was talk about the mayoral partnership. Education. But I definitely raised the issue of after-school programs, uh-huh. of building schools, of siting schools. I think what we have, what people have to look forward to is that this partnership is real and that we've raised the consciousness of the people in this city about why education is so important. When you look at, and and you described the schools in a way that, frankly, in my mind, was kind. Uh, When you look at the fact that we're losing half of our kids, uh, when you see 50% dropout rate, 80% of the kids in the fourth grade are scoring in the bottom 20 percentile in math and reading, uh, when you see uh, that uh, at schools like Locke, three out of 100 kids qualify for college, we've got a crisis. I think why we should be heartened is that we've raised the consciousness about this. People understand that we all have a collective responsibility. We can't just finger point at teachers, the union, the bureaucracy, the school district and not accept that every one of us have a responsibility as well. What I did was raise my hand and said, I'm responsible too. I want to partner with you. And I think while we weren't successful in the courts, we were, well, we were initially successful legislatively, weren't successful in the courts, uh, the victory this year was that we elected a reform board that wants to move ahead. Uh, with many of the reforms that I outlined earlier in the year in the framework uh, for schoolhouse success uh, that talks about investing in teacher training, empowering parents and teachers, principal academies, extending the school day, smaller, safer, cleaner schools, uh, focusing on a partnership between the city and the mayor, the private sector. So I think we have a lot to be heartened about. We're turning a new chapter We're about, you know, we we announced a historic partnership with the mayor and and the school district that is, I think, very, very significant. It will mean some two families of schools. That's a high school, two middle schools, 
uh, the feeder elementary schools, about 30,000 kids. If you think about some of the successes of the charter schools today, we're going to do with Green Dot. And you know, I have Marshall Tuck, who ran Green Dot, Ray Cortinas, who's run New York, L.A., San Francisco, San Jose. We've got the apparatus to put together a reform effort on a scale that the city hasn't seen, because 30,000 people uh, is a lot of folks. I'm real excited about the partnership with the school district, the joint use, putting libraries, parks, schools together, smaller schools. It's not going to be overnight. We raised $50 million, the most ever in the history of the school district, from one family, and it's going to all be based on are we showing outcomes and demonstrating success. You used a phrase there, it's not going to be overnight, and of course it can't be. But school changes, unlike reform in, say, the LAPD or other institutions, uh, does involve a body of students who are only there for a limited amount of time. And every year that goes by is another year uh, that a a child wastes a year of education in the school system. What do you say to parents who, who don't really feel like they have two or three or four or five years to wait for school reform here, but need change for their children now? I think what you say to them is that we've got to focus on the feeder schools, the elementary schools at the same time as the middle and high schools. Uh, I think you got to say to them they have a responsibility too. One of the things I've said with respect to this new partnership is we're going to put parent compacts together where parents get up and stand up in front of their kids and they're going to say, this is my responsibility. Because anybody who's a parent in this room knows the first teacher are the parents. And too many parents uh, in this town just send their kids to school and expect teachers and principals to teach their kids. So we all have a collective responsibility. That's what I'd say to them. And I imagine there's some parents here, so that's what I'm saying to you. Let's imagine that it's two years from now, and you've gotten everything you want uh, from this board. You've got your clusters, and you've got some measure of mayoral control. How is life going to be different for a sixth grader uh, in one of your clusters? What's going to be tangibly different, not just structurally or governmentally different, but how is that kid going to get a better education than they're getting today? I think there are, and if anybody's from L.A. Best here who can maybe speak to that, but I I think the number is there are 180 after-school programs in the city of Los Angeles. 59 of them were created in the two years that I've been mayor. Think about that. That's an astronomical number when you think that L.A.'s Best has been around for, what, 15 years or so, maybe longer. I think what you'll see in our schools are enrichment programs in sixth grade. I think what you'll see in our schools is access to health care. We're already in the process of, of once we get the, the families of schools, to be able to, some kids miss school because they don't have dental care because they don't have health care. And we're going to figure out partnerships around health care, enrichment. I think the, what, those, what those parents will see is where, where necessary extending the school day. Uh, they'll see kids who understand that safety is important and that they have a responsibility to treat their fellow student with respect and, and safely. I think you'll see uniforms in our schools. I think you'll see a real focus on achievement and outcomes. Those are some of the things you'll see in our schools. You're listening to Antonio Villaraigosa with Jim Newton, editor of the Los Angeles Times editorial pages. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. 
Next Sunday, Sokolo Radio presents the noted Caltech physicist Chuck Steidel. Elected last year to the National Academy of Sciences, Steidel has been looking at galaxies around quasars, which are 11 billion light years away. Science writer K.C. Cole sits down with the physicist for an in-depth and engaging look at the connection between galaxy formation and the development of structure in the universe. That's next week at 9 p.m. on 89.3 KPCC. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C. A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Days on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Renee Montaigne. He soldiers. Good morning. This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. As we speak, a news conference is scheduled to be underway in downtown Los Angeles. I'm Pat Morrison. Former Senator John Edwards, a North Carolina Democrat, has a book out. More NPR and local news. 89.3 KPCC. All things considered. 89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. In June of 1942, American soil was invaded for the first time since the War of 1812. It was the Aleutian Island of Attu that was seized by Japanese troops, and thousands of American soldiers were sent to that island to get it back. We'll talk about the Battle of Attu, as told in the new documentary Red, White, Black, and Blue, to be seen on PBS stations Tuesday. We'll talk about it on Air Talk weekday mornings at 10 on KPCC. Nothing, not even bloomers, made sports as accessible to women as Title IX did. The federal law leveling the playing field in school sports took effect 35 years ago and opened up opportunities for girls and women as never before. Did it also affect boys' and men's school sports? 35 years of Title IX, it's all part of the KPCC College Tour. Come out to UCLA on November 7th at 7 p.m. For more information, go to kpcc.org and click on Pat Morrison. Every day, you count on KPCC to bring you balanced, in-depth news and information. This service is possible only with your financial support. New legislation allows you to make a charitable contribution to KPCC in 2007 from your individual retirement account with potential tax savings. It's a great way to support the programming you rely on. To learn more about charitable IRA rollovers, call us at 626-585-7000. Thanks. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, back to Jim Newton with Mayor Antonio Villaregosa. LAPD. By uh, most measures, uh, the department seems a more confident, capable, diverse organization than it has been in the past. 
violent crime is down. Uh, I looked on the website today, 7.9% for the year is the number uh, from the latest period that I saw anyway. Is there, I mean, you may ask. Violent crime is down five years running. The city is safer today than any time since 1956 on a per capita basis. Homicides right now, homicides are on track to be at their lowest level in absolute numbers since 1970 when we had, what, a million and a half people. Now, importantly, because we, we were talking for some <clears throat> demographic groups, this is maybe the safest big city in America. For others, let me just say this. In South L.A., where 8% of the population lives but 40% of the violence occurs, there are parts of South L.A., like Watts, where some crime has gone, down, where we've gone a month, two, without any homicides. There's something happening mm -hmm. uh, in the town, and that's a good thing. It's had an impact on a lot of things, including tourism, up two years running. It's had a lot to do, I think, with the fact that uh, total construction in this town is up at an all-time high. Housing starts up at an all-time high. Two years running, both, both $5 billion in, in new construction, uh, both years, housing starts all-time high. I think it has something to do with people feel safer in this town. Mm -hmm. And one consequence of that is uh, Chief Bratton, very popular, got a second term uh, that you're appointing him to. Um, and yet, at the same time, we saw May Day uh, in MacArthur Park. And I guess I'm curious how you reconcile the LAPD you saw in MacArthur Park with the LAPD you've just described in terms of its accomplishments. It's very difficult to reconcile I'll be candid with you. I didn't like what I saw. Those images hit me in the gut, and I think they should hit everybody in the gut. I'm the first one to stand up. I, I go to the hospital when our officers are assaulted. Uh, I recognize I got the toughest job uh, to be a police officer in a big city, uh, especially a city that's as under-policed today. Assaults against police officers are up 56%, many of them unprovoked. They're just driving in their car. They're standing on the street. People shoot at them. That's, that, you know, boggles the mind when you think about what it takes to be a cop. You know, I have a security force that, you know, is with me nearly 24-7, and, and, you know, I know that they put their lives on the line for me, and yet what I saw there was a complete breakdown in command and control a lack of training, uh, a, uh, a disregard uh, for the civil and human rights of both individuals who were there demonstrating and the press. And I think our response to that has been the, the self-assessment by the LAPD. I have never seen, and since I've been an adult following the LAPD, I've never seen such an honest and transparent assessment of what went wrong by the LAPD. I've seen it by independent groups looking outside, mm -hmm. but an honest, independent, uh, no-holds-barred assessment that was uh, produced uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Having said that, I'll say this. If we're truly going to demonstrate that this is a new LAPD, then there will have to be consequences for individuals who did what they did on that day, period. Traffic. Certainly in the course of my life in L.A., traffic has gone from 
being an inconvenience, really to being a real impediment uh, to civic life here. It's hard for arts institutions such as this one to draw audiences when people don't want to show up across town at rush hour. You've proposed a number of things to deal with traffic. It's a hard problem. Uh, subway to the sea, synchronized, synchronized traffic lights and the like. Um, what do you see making a real difference in this problem, and, and how much of that is really realistically achievable between now and the end of this term uh, for you? I remember the campaign trouble. I remember I was really candid and forthright with, and I think in the first race we did 55 debates. I don't know if you remember that in the first race in 2001. <laughs> I remember. And then we limited it, but it was 30-something in the second race. I mean, they just, nobody had ever done this many. And I think I did by far the most of the debates. And I remember talking to people straight. And it, it would never get an applause. The applause lines got, the, let me tell you the, the, the traffic solutions that got the biggest applause lines. I'll stop construction during the rush hour. I'll put left-hand turn signals that go on demand. I'll put traffic officers at the worst intersections. Well, those were three that, that come to mind. I said, you want to do something about traffic? Well, get out of your single-passenger automobile once in a while. <laughs> I said, you want to do something about traffic? We've got to invest in public transportation. Talked about the subway to the sea. Talk I said, you want to do something about traffic? We've got to do smart growth where we put transit-oriented development along transportation centers, and you put people close to public transit. It never got an applause. <laughs> now, I want you that? to know. I want you, it did today, but let me, <laughs> let me tell you now. That's I progress. stopped construction during the rush hour, and you didn't even notice it. I put, I've done 189 in two years, 189 left-hand turn signals. We're on our way to 460-some-odd. I, I put 75 traffic officers at the worst intersections. I have Tiger teams on Crenshaw, Wilshire, and Ventura Boulevard towing the people who park during the rush hour and make gridlock for the rest of you. We're doing the reversible lane on Sepulveda. You know, and with all of that, you barely notice it. Why? Because what I said the first time that never got an applause hit it right and smack in the middle. We're never going to deal with traffic, not Antonio Villaraigosa, not any of the other people running, not any of you, until we understand the following. We've got to make an unprecedented investment in public transportation. And Tom Bradley ran, said, when he ran in 1973, he said he'd built you a subway. The subway came. He said it would happen in the first four years. Well, it did happen, but not in the first four years. It took 20 years to come. We're building two light rail lines by 2010, one on the east side, one the exposition line to Culver City. Uh, we built... This happened just as I became mayor, so this wasn't me, but it, it's the town. We did the Orange Line to the San Fernando Valley. We got $1.3 billion in... Now, this wasn't the spillover money that the governor used uh -huh. part of. $1.3 billion in the transportation bond. There was zero in when he first authored it for public transportation in L.A. alone. $4.5 billion that we put for statewide. Mwanduit did it. We got the 405 money, which is the most congested freeway in the United States of America. We got $1.2 billion worth of congestion money. And with all of that, because you said about the successes in the Congress, and, mm -hmm. and with all of that, 
It's a drop in the bucket. We still have traffic. Let me give you another one. And some of you may live in those neighborhoods. I can give you a part of the city that has the worst traffic in the city, and it also has the most stop signs and the most speed bumps. It's a part of the city that has said no to public transit again and again and again. So if we want to deal with traffic, we're all going to have to get up there, roll up our sleeves, and recognize this. It's not going to happen by mayoral fiat or dictum. It's only going to happen if every one of us say, I've got a responsibility to get on a bus and, a, and public transit once in a while. Thank you. One or two. <laughs> do, you, do you use public transit? I do from time to time. Mm-hmm. I was doing Ride Metro with the mayor for a while. <laughs> I, I haven't gotten on a bus probably in a, in a few months. One thing, you turned some heads last week when you talked about inclusionary zoning, and I realize this is sort of an inside the Civic Center conversation, but, but it is one with real ramifications for the city. There are uh, some people who feel very strongly in inclusionary zoning that it will uh, provide some badly needed affordable housing stock. There are others who really worry that particularly coming now, just as the real estate market is softening, that you really could sort of kill the golden goose uh, that is responsible for so much development, particularly in downtown Will you take a minute to elaborate on what inclusionary zoning means from your perspective and and what you'd like to see happen there? Forbes just described Los Angeles as being the least affordable city for housing in the United States of America. New York and the Bay Area have higher housing prices, but our housing prices, along with the lack of medium income, which is lower than those two cities, creates a situation where it's tougher to buy a home in Los Angeles than anywhere else. There's condo conversions all over the city. We have a 3% vacancy rate for apartments. I have fully funded the housing trust fund for the first time in LA history, two years in a row. I'm about to fully fund the housing trust fund at $100 million three years in a row. First time it's ever happened, folk. No mayor had ever done it before. I'm saying to developers in the business community, it's time everybody stepped up. The fact of the matter is 110 jurisdictions in California have inclusionary zoning ordinances. New York, Chicago, Boston all have, and there's, those towns are booming. The, the, the devil will be in the details, And that's why I'll be important. I've got to balance the housing advocates who, frankly, because of the need, would like an inclusionary zoning ordinance that that assesses fees higher than most developers are willing to accept. I've got to get the homeowners to understand that we could have elegant, smart density along transportation corridors and that affordable housing doesn't have to be... It can be beautiful. It can be smart and it can be you know reflect the character of neighborhoods in order to get this it's going to take a real balancing effort but it's important because we need a permanent funding stream for housing in los angeles if we don't increase and housing starts i said we're at all-time high but we're so far behind because for 20 years we weren't building housing we're so far behind that if we don't really accelerate the number of units that we build in this town, it's going to make it not only impossible to buy a home, 
but to rent one in the city of Los Angeles. So we're in a crisis. It means everybody pulling together. It means a balanced approach. The way you make it work for our developers, we're going to have to have some density bonuses and parking variances. We're going to have to encourage public transit along those lines because we can't continue to go in a situation where not only the poor can't afford to buy a house, but teachers, firefighters, cops, people can't afford to buy. Most of you who have kids, your kids can't afford to buy a house in the city of Los Angeles. They had to go to Diamond Bar and Santa Clarita and beyond. So it's, it's a big challenge, and I took it on. And as I said, you know what people will expect from me? To give it 110%, to go for it, to take the risk of doing it in the first place. Let's hope I'm successful. They'll appreciate that more if I am, but I'm going for it. Population growth, obviously, uh, is behind a lot of what you have to deal with, of accommodating growth. One particular segment of that growth is people who are here illegally, who have entered the country illegally. I know no uh, topic agitates the readership of our paper quite like illegal immigration, so I'm sure you have the same experience. I guess, though, there does seem one uh, worthy point in this whole conversation that I would wonder if you'd address, which is that People who have entered this country illegally do, in fact, place a significant burden on public facilities, on hospitals, schools, police, and whatnot. What should a local government, uh, such as Los Angeles, do to ensure that those services continue to be available for people who are here legally and not become overtaxed by those who are here illegally? I think what we have to do is to advocate to the federal government to fix the broken immigration system. The fact of the matter is the vast majority of what we just talked about in terms of affordability has a lot to do with a lot of factors, not just immigration. The lack of unionization in this town, the lack of good jobs, the state of the schools, which impacts our ability to track affordability of housing, lack of revenue that comes into the city. But I I think what cities can do are the following, because there's no question that there is a strain on public health, a strain on schools and services, some county services, mostly public health and schools. In terms of these people, the vast majority of them work, uh, have some of the highest work participation rates in the workforce of any group. They actually pay taxes, but it's to the federal government, not to local Uh, and state government, so we have to call upon the federal government to fix the system. That means secure our borders uh, in a post-September 11th era, but it also means uh, provide a pathway for citizenship to the 12 million people who are here. Think about this, everybody, which was what was so draconian about what was being proposed when they were saying felonies for 12 million people. We're going to deport 12 million people who have 3 million U.S. children, divide their families, because the kids are going to stay here, a lot of them, trust me, uh, they're (laughs) going to stay here, and what are we going to do with that? I mean, we've got a crisis, and it's why I have gone to the Congress, and I've stood with McCain, Kennedy, and others in a bipartisan effort to fix the immigration system, because it's broken, and the beltways failed to fix it. It's as simple as that. You've just heard Jim Newton with Mayor Antonio Villaregosa. Up next, the audience asks the questions. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. 
On Wednesday, November 28th, Sokolo asks, should the porn industry be saved? Sokolo brings together a panel of experts, porn producers and former actors Nina Hartley and Ira Levine, economist Jack Kaiser, and Sharon Mitchell of the Adult Industry Medical Health Care Foundation to discuss whether or not L.A.'s porn industry is a boon or a burden. Mariel Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News moderates the discussion. Events are free, but reservations are recommended. For more information and to reserve seating, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. In a moment, the Socalo audience asks the questions of Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Hi, this is Larry Wilmore. Make sure you listen to Zocalo on KPCC. I'm listening. I just want to let you know that I love Zocalo. I think it's a great place to have a public forum. Often when I come to one of your talks, I hear people say something where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you just said that in public. Can you really say that? And it's going on the radio. It's fantastic. I don't... I can think of very few places in Los Angeles where you have a forum where people could do something like that. I think the event is fabulous and the food and drink is fabulous, so it's been a successful evening. This is only the second time we've come to one of their events, but we like the fact that it's free, for one thing, and that they get really good, interesting speakers who have something important to say. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by the American Film Institute, presenting AFI Fest 2007, featuring 11 days of cinema with red carpet premieres and controversial works from emerging artists. The events highlight leading voices in international cinema and begin with the premiere of Lions for Lambs, starring Tom Cruise. Staged in the atmosphere of the Rooftop Village, November 1st through 11th. Tickets available at AFI.com slash AFI Fest or 866-AFI-FEST. Next time on Day to Day, are racial tensions in Los Angeles a laughing matter? I came out here, you know, yeah, blacks, whites, Mexicans, Mexicans. <laughs> this audience thinks so, and so does this anthropologist. We get a lot of blacks, whites, and Latinos enjoying comedy together, and it gives us permission to identify and laugh at some of those things. Bridging cultures with comedy next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. 89.3 KPCC is now broadcasting in HD digital stereo. With a new HD radio receiver, you can listen to our main service and two alternative channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish-language news service of the BBC, and the current adult alternative music from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD radio, please visit kpcc.org. Next time on The World, Policing the Internet. Beijing has sent pro-democracy bloggers to prison. Some believe an American internet company helped finger them. This week, Yahoo executives appear on Capitol Hill. They'll be asked to explain Yahoo's collaboration with Chinese authorities and whether a U.S. firm should help enforce censorship laws that wouldn't stand up in America. Yahoo in China, next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa with Jim Newton as a Socalo audience asks questions. 
Hello, Mr. Mayor. My name is Danielle Brazel. I'm with Arts for LA. Earlier this year, you were quoted as saying that the arts are dessert. Now, given that we're in an amazing cultural institution that is doing incredible work for many of our children and providing access, can you tell me what you meant by the arts are for dessert and that you needed to focus on meat and potatoes? The best way to tell you what I meant is tell you what we've done. We're putting a cultural arts master plan together to figure out what we need to do in this town with respect to cultural affairs. I've hired Olga Garay with the Doris Duke Foundation, who really has, has I think, raised a level of excitement in this town about the arts. I make every effort at, at the Getty, at the Science Center, MOCA, at LACMA, with the Pompidou. You know, I understand how important the arts are. We've, we've protected the arts budget. Uh, initially, when I was a council member, uh, we've increased it slightly when others are getting cut. Uh, I can tell you that dessert, I think the arts lift the human spirit. It provides us with an opportunity to emphasize our common ground. And I'm excited about the arts. And I think Olga Garay is going to take us to a new level. Hi, my name is Andy Richards, and my question is about May 1st, and I wanted to know if you regret not being here, and where were you, and what did you learn from your trip? I was in Mexico uh, and El Salvador to promote trade, uh, in the case of El Salvador, to also promote collaboration around gangs, and particularly intelligence sharing uh, around gangs that are transnational. When I got to the airport, the image, I immediately ordered the images to the computer so that, we, I mean, access the images so that we could see what had happened. I asked Chief Bratton to stay to monitor. The, the situation was quelled, and so I didn't believe that day that I needed to return. Uh, the whole raisonatra for the trip to Mexico was to argue that we need bridges, not walls, and that we need to focus on more than just the immigration debate, but also the, the opportunities that come with sharing a border with Mexico. When I saw that the city was smoldering, if you will, from that event, I knew that there was one person me, who could come back and calm the waters, and that's why I decided to come back. I don't regret that I didn't come back that first night. Uh, I think I came back when I felt it was important to come back, and I think if you remember, I did calm the waters, and I'm very proud of the fact that the chief has put together a honest and transparent assessment of what happened that day, but like I said, and I'll say it again, I expect people to be disciplined and to be held accountable for what happened that day. And that will, that will be the proof in the pudding that we really have turned a chapter in a, at the LAPD. And, and if and when that happens, will you be comfortable reporting that to the public? So not just you are reassured by that, but that the public generally will be reassured that, that you've gotten to the bottom of it? Well, we'll be able to report that people were disciplined what we can't report under Copley, 
that's uh, this, this, this court decision. What we can't report are the names, but we can report that people were disciplined and that everything that we could give under Copley, we will give. And I feel very comfortable doing that. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Russell Brown, President of Downtown LA Neighborhood Council. I appreciate all your hard work. Uh, last week, there was an ACLU street in, encampment settlement for downtown. LA has been described as the homeless capital of the country, and especially downtown has more than a share of homelessness. How do we really form partnerships with neighborhoods and the county and the state and federal government to break this cycle and really change people's lives for the better and get them out of an environment that's, that seems to keep them there, yet at the same time change government that, that seems impossible to really have an urban policy, but only a warfare policy? You know, in the two years that I've funded, fully funded the Housing Trust Fund, both years, half the, the $100 million went to permanent supportive housing for the homeless. This next year, when I fully fund it again for the third year in a row, $50 million will go to permanent supportive housing for the homeless. The $200 million that, that we put together, plus the hundred and the hundred million, rather, for homeless, plus the hundred and twenty-five million that we put for Section Eight vouchers to move homeless families into Section Eight housing, is two hundred and twenty-six million. In ten years, the city hadn't spent two hundred and twenty-six million for permanent supportive housing. Having said that, it's a drop in the bucket in terms of the need. You know, a lot of these problems we haven't been dealing with over a long period of time. A couple of things need to happen. We've got to support the national, Maxine, Congresswoman Maxine Waters National Housing Trust Fund initiative. We've got, to, we've got to focus and pressure the federal government, and you said it. I opposed the war from the moment we invaded Iraq, and I can tell you, why is it a local issue? Because we're spending two trillion dollars of the national wealth and it's money that could go to health care, it's money that can go to infrastructure, it's money that can go to housing, it's money that can go to education. And, and, and the, the, when you look at what the federal, under this administration, you see a federal government that is completely abdicated on the issue of housing, uh, very little for, for homeless. And, you know, cities can't do it without a partnership with the federal government because they have you know, a lot more resources than we do. Having said that, we're going to keep on trying to tackle this. We've got to collaborate with the county, as you all know. We do the housing, but they have the services. One of the things that New York does, New York and San Francisco particularly, they're cities and counties both. So there's less, less of a wall between creating this. Finally... I've taken the position, and I know you represent the Downtown Neighborhood Council, I've taken the position that every district in the city of Los Angeles needs to step up, raise their hand, and say, I'm going to provide housing. You know, not all at the same level, but every district in this city should be accepting the burden and the responsibility for homelessness. And we've got to challenge all of our communities in that vein because then we can challenge the rest of the county why are they sending 
all of their homeless to the city. Until we do that, we're not really going to be able to address this problem on the scale that we need to. My name is Ruben Medrano. I met you at Dolores Mission several times. What is your vision for California, and when are you going to become California governor? You know, I've said a, a hundred times, and I'll say it again. Being mayor of the town I was born and raised in that my grandpa came to a hundred years ago is a, is a dream come true. I'm going to focus on my job. You know, when you, when you look too far ahead, that's how you trip. I think the best thing I could do is figure out how we continue to tackle the tough issues in the city in the next four years, hopefully get an opportunity to run for mayor again. And when the opportunity comes, we'll make that assessment. But, you know, I love doing what I do. And I will say this about governor's a great job to govern California. But, you know, when you're mayor of L.A., Chicago and New York, I know for a lot of you, you think that there's this real desire to be governor. Why do you point to me when you Well, because you guys always write about it, you know, but you got a great job. L.A. is bigger than 36 states, you know. I mean, this is, this is a governor's job when you think about it. So I love what, doing what I'm doing, and I hope to continue to be able to do it. Hi, my name is Vanessa Calderon, and I'm a third-year medical student at UCLA. And I have to tell you that in a year and a half, I'm going to graduate med school, and I'm frightened because I have to practice medicine in this failing healthcare system. And I have to try to provide quality, comprehensive, affordable health care to everyone living here. And we have 20% of Los Angelinos that are uninsured. And I'm curious, now that San Francisco is trying to implement what they just passed, their universal health care bill that they just passed over there, what your plan is to ensure that Californians here, Angelinos here, are going to be able to have quality, affordable, comprehensive health care in L.A. Well, remember, remember this. I just said San Francisco is a city and a county both. They can do that. L.A. County would have to do that, not L.A. City. We don't have, we don't provide for the public health here in Los Angeles. Let me tell you what I've done. I authored the Healthy Families Program. 800,000 kids have health care because of my efforts. I just called uh, during the whole debate around S-CHIP, which is the parent of the Healthy Families, and, and they, the Congress was trying to expand the S-CHIP program. I wrote all of the California Congress members asking them to support the overriding the president's veto, even though I don't have any jurisdiction over health care. Uh, I raised 20-something million, I don't know the exact amount, 20-something million for an effort, a public-private effort uh, last year uh, to provide health care to, to uninsured children who don't qualify for healthy families. Everywhere I've gone, I've campaigned. When I've campaigned for Democratic candidates for president, I've campaigned within the party and outside of it on the idea that the Democrats need to stand up and say that health care is a right, not a privilege. The only issue should be able to figure out how we deliver that health care, but not whether we do deliver that health care to people. So I'm with you. We've got a big challenge. And again, you know, when you're at war and you're spending the kind of money that we're spending out of the national treasury, that money could go to provide health care for every single American. 
Can I ask you something, Mayor, uh, just in that regard? If the veto is not overridden, if, if the S-CHIP program does go away, how much will that add to the burden of providing health care here in Los Angeles? We, we have the, I think, still, well, because of healthy families, we, don't, we may be not now the, the city with the largest number of uninsured, but we're right up there among cities with the largest number of uninsured children. Uh, and so S-CHIP will have a big impact on the city of Los Angeles. Hi, my name is Elba Guerrero, the mayor for the city of Huntington Park. How are you, Elba? How are you, Mayor? Hi. Uh, from one mayor to another, I just want to know your opinion on the utility users tax, and uh, how are you educating your voters on this? Well, you know, as a mayor, that cities all across the state are facing a crisis with this uh, telephone utility tax. That we've, we're in a situation in the courts. The courts haven't decided, uh, but they could decide uh, against cities currently uh, and say that the tax that we currently have on mobile phone use is illegal. They may actually say that it's not. So what cities around the state have done is either draft the provision supporting that TUT in a way that it passes legal muster or reduce it. We have chosen to reduce it. So we're going to take it to the ballot in February, reduce it by 1% because the hope is that by reducing it by 1%, there'll be support for it. Uh, look, nobody likes taxes, everybody. Nobody. But I can tell you it's going to be a $270 million impact on the L.A. budget. That's 3,000 cops. That's half the firefighter budget. You've seen the firefighters mostly. Don't think it's just because just it's not in the city of Los Angeles that L.A. city assets aren't over there. We have this mutual aid agreement. We help them. They help us. We have assets on all the fires in the North County and East County area right now. And I can tell you, when you look at a $270 million hit to the budget, it, it's, it would be a hole that, that would require very, very serious layoffs, cutbacks in departments from, from library hours, which, by the way, all-time high. We're open now. And under these two years, you know, you know a half a million uh, you know, people love this, by the way. A half a million potholes filled, you know, went from 224,000 when I became mayor to 280,000 and now to 307,000. We're going to 350,000. So we need that money to be able to continue to provide the services in this town. So we've decided to reduce them. Some cities, I think Pasadena is just going to keep it at the same rate good for Pasadena, but we've decided uh, to reduce it by 1%. Uh, I'm David Anderson. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I was wondering if you were at all concerned about the uh, state of or the future of the L.A. Times. <laughs> that is such a softball. <clears throat> yeah, well, because I'm not going to, I mean, look, I was, I was concerned that it's owned by the Chicago Tribune. I really am. I think an L.A. paper should be owned by L.A. people. I really do. I said to Jim, and I, I believe this, 
you know, perfect example? When we were doing the Olympics and the Olympic bin, the Chicago Tribune covered the Olympics in Chicago every single day. We didn't. If you look back, it was very little coverage. One front page coverage and then a front page coverage, of course, when we didn't get it. I mean, the fact of the matter, in my opinion, it's a paper that, that is losing its soul. It doesn't know that it's in L.A. And I'm being candid, and I know I'll probably pay for that, but, you know, I, I really believe that. And I think you should say what you really believe. So I'm being as candid as I can. You've been listening to Jim Newton with Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our many... Support for this public radio podcast comes from Acura, featuring the TL Type S with a 286-horsepower V6 and real-time traffic alerts. Learn more at Acura.com.